afternoon and good evening wherever and whenever you may be and welcome to episode 38 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm Clarice Larkery. And I'm Amon Woman. This week, can I get a woof woof uh, <laughs> for Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog? Can I get a woof woof, people? <laughs> Warner Bros is serving up another bit of Oscar bait with King Richard. Celine Sciamma delivers some childlike wonder in Petit Maman. And there's more ghostly action in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Plus, in this week's hot take, we ask if dead actors should be brought back to life on screen. But first, let's have a little check-in with the crew. Amon, Clarice, what's been going on? I've had a fun week. Um, I did an uh, introduction uh, for Devil in a Blue Dress at the BFI, uh, which was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed that film. We should have gotten a ton of sequels, uh, but it never materialised, unfortunately. But that film is one of my favourites in Denzel's entire filmography. So it was really, really uh, fun to do that. I was also on stage with uh, my Empire Pals for the live Tom Cruise ranking the other night, which was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Lot, you've lot you've of, had your fill of Tom Cruise this week. I <laughs> You're really like, have no more. <laughs> There's, there, there were so many Tom Cruise films that I hadn't seen, that I hadn't seen. Um, so it was good to just cram a few. Um, and yeah, he's, he's had a really interesting filmography. Uh, <laughs> Magnolia was a film that I had not seen and I particularly enjoyed you know, finding out about that one because that has one of the greatest Tom Cruise character introductions of all time. Yeah, it's, it's really so great. great. And he's fantastic in that movie. Uh, so, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a good week. Clarice, any Tom Cruise? <laughs> no, not this week. Sometimes <laughs> other weeks, but no Tom Cruise this week. Um, I, don't, I went, um, I saw a movie at the Natural History Museum, which is very cool. Wow. Um, they had a screening. Uh, so I don't know. We'll talk about this. There's a Sky movie coming out called A Boy, a Boy Called Christmas, which is okay. their sort of holiday offering. Oh, Christmas I've got my in it. for next week. <laughs> Sally Hawkins is in it. Um, it's great. It's cute. I mean, we'll talk about it when it goes out. Um, um, but yeah, they, they held the screening like in the actual foyer of the Natural History Museum. So we were underneath the big whale. Oh, <laughs> the whole time I was like, what if this whale just drops down? <laughs> like, Toby Jones is there. Like, what if this whale just, just drops down on Toby Jones? <laughs> <laughs> um, that was really nice. There was ice skating. I mean, I didn't do the ice skating, there were ice skaters, glue vine. I feel quite Christmassy now, even though it's oh. still November. <laughs> well, I, I, we haven't got time to talk about this week, but I saw a movie called Drive My Car, which is... Um, I keep Ryus- hearing amazing things about this. Yeah, it's directed by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Um, and it's, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of um, Haruki Murakami, um, the, the writer. I think he's based on a short story that he made, but... As it's so funny watching this film because um, my boyfriend is a theatre director. He's very into like Chekhov and uh, Tolstoy. <laughs> and like we watched recently, we watched um, um, Uncle Vanya. So he, he loves Russia and stuff. So anyway, we watched recently <laughs> Uncle Vanya. Much of the story is, ba- is basically about a theatre director who's putting on a production of Uncle Vanya. Um, but it's kind of how he's like a wid, he's just been bereaved, but it's like how he, you know, driving with this this person who's driving his driving his car there and back I suppose it's like him understanding him understanding his relationship and I oh it's just it was so brilliant I had a new just like new um appreciation for Chekhov now because I always think it's a bit <laughs> dry some of the characters but seeing it through that lens and understanding it and kind of 
yeah seeing how they put on this production and then the performances um yeah it was just honestly stunning um I saw that picture house uh in Fulham Road and it was great so that's definitely a screen <laughs> for me. Yeah, but, I really um, so yeah, I hope you guys go see it. It was really, really good. Um, so let's um, crack on though and get into the deep and powerful reviews with The Power of the Dog. 25 years since our first run together. 1900 and nothing. It's a long time. What you doing? Getting mixed up with her. You are marvelous, Rose. We were married Sunday. Who let the dogs out? Who? 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 Jane Campion, that's who. <laughs> <laughs> the way I rinsed that song when it came out. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. Um, it was just, it's honestly probably like a naughty. I, I, there's a one hit wonders album out there from the noughties, <laughs> and it was basically on everything. Um, yeah. Based on the 1967 Thomas Savage novel of the same name, charismatic rancher Phil Burbank inspires fear and awe in those around him. When his brother brings home a new wife and her son, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love. Written and directed by Campion, the film stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Jesse Plemons, Kirsten Dunst, and Cody Smith-McPhee. So, I mean, this is, seems to be a pretty much uh, critical darling so far since it kind of premiered. Was it at Venice it premiered? Um, it's been all over the London, it's been yes, a load of yeah. festivals, hasn't it? Um, yeah. So I suppose for you, um, this is this is Campion. It's her first film since Bright Star, I think in 2009. Obviously, she's done her TV work. So um, Clarice, how do you think then this film, you know, adds to her cinematic repertoire? Like, what do you think this brings? It's so kind of a, any evolution or just kind of very, you know, Campion's accents all over it? Yeah, I don't... Evolution's interesting. I guess it's because it's her first male protagonist, right? So it's a bit slightly different perspective, but oh. it if it, it's sort of campy and just doing 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 it, doing the shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fantastic. And it's like kind of like I don't know if she has anywhere to, to evolve because she has such a she has such a precise understanding of like of human beings and like mm. how human beings function and interact with each other. And I feel like um you know that is just really at the core of this movie and then I guess also like how human beings interact with landscape um and it was very interesting to me that this is this set in Montana but shot in uh I think it's South Ortego yeah. uh yeah in New Zealand near um oh god is it D D Dunedin I have no idea. Um, Don't ask me. I'm <laughs> there, is like name. not my forte. But what I find so interesting about that is is it sort of it doesn't look like Montana. It looks very much like New Zealand, but New Zealand landscapes have this, and I'm sorry if I'm over romanticizing this country, have this sort of like slightly mystical, like the lights very golden, like the the mountains feel a bit softer than they would in Montana. So it 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 gives this like little extra like Ah, like fabulistic, like fantastical edge to Power mm. of the Dog, which I think so serves the story. And it's just interesting how like the, the choice of location for me changed the nature of what was happening. Mm. Amon, would you say that you are a champion champion? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as familiar with champions filmography as I probably should be. Um, and 
maybe that's part of the reason why I, I'm not as in love with this film as my critical brethren and sisteren. I don't know what they're. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, yeah, like th- there's a lot that I like about it. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch's performance, especially, I think is fantastic because even in in, in a lot of Benedict Cumberbatch films, even when the character sort of isn't fully, you know, coded as being a genius person, that genius know-it-all that Benedict Cumberbatch plays a lot comes through. There's none of that in this character. Like, he just fully loses himself in this character. And I think that's one of the reasons why the performance really stinks, uh, stuck out to me. Um, so I love it on that level. As, you know, Clarice has alluded to, it looks it's absolutely beautiful to look at. I think the cinematographer is Abby Wagner, who also did the cinematography on Zola, another film which is amazing to look at. So on those levels, it works. And even, you know, because I'm me, I have to mention the Johnny Greenwood score, which is not Johnny Greenwood, which... literally, have a rest. <laughs> he's doing everything. <laughs> what is he doing? He's doing Spencer. What's the other one that he's done recently? He's like the Lin-Manuel Miranda of, of artsy films. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're yeah. just like, have, have a sleep, have yeah. a little nap, my friend. Have a nap. <laughs> Do you remember like Rihanna wouldn't stop? Like what's going to happen is like Rihanna, when she bring, bring out a new album like every year and now she's like, uh, no, no one was like, where's the next album? It's like, never. <laughs> Buy my beauty products. I am napping. <laughs> I am sleeping. <laughs> I alone. gave you my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But yeah, like it's, it's not a score that I'm going to be re-listening too much because it's very much one that works in the world of the film, but not that doesn't make it easy listening. This is score for Spencer, on the other hand, I'm going to listen to a lot because that score is great. Um, but yeah, I just... The first time I watched this, it was like an 8 a.m. LFF screening. And this is a very, you know, slow film in a way that's very deliberate. But for, for, I was not in the mood for that type of film at that time on that day. I had a better time with it on the second second go around, but it's still, for me, a little bit too tedious and slow at times. Um, mm. so, so, yeah. But I, I, it's a film that I admire more than I like, put it that mm. way. Yeah, I mean, I I I think I like the pacing of it. My issue is, I suppose, and I did actually really enjoy it. Um, mm. I think, you know, there's some, that's kind of slow burn, I think adds to the psychological element, especially when, you know, when you have like Kirsten Dunst's character who is just slowly deteriorating in this, this, this house. And I think it, there's a beautiful scene Oh God, it's just that scene where she's playing the piano. Yes, I mean, how it plays out. And it just like, <laughs> it's just this sense of dread and he's just coming. And yeah, I mean, we could talk about the character, but like that, how that played out, the kind of slow, just allowing, she like lets the, I suppose the scene breathe. I like that, you know, I like that pacing. But I think for me, how um, I, I lost it, is that maybe that's my own fault. Maybe I watched too many movies, but I knew exactly what was going to happen. So basically I spent the next like, the second half of it, just waiting for that thing to happen. Mm. And that kind of spoiled my enjoyment a little bit. Um, just because it kind of feels like, okay, can we just get, get moving? So that, and then, then it felt a bit tedious. So I think for me, the first half was great, but the minute I clocked exactly what was going to happen, exactly how it would play out, it was like me doing Cluedo. I was like, it's going to be this <laughs> with that. <laughs> and it was like, I uh, just kind of that, I came, became a little bit impatient. Um, so then I suppose you meant we mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch 
how do we feel about the character work, um, Clarice? I mean, the, it was very interesting performances and very different ones from each of the four core actors. Yeah, I kind of want to. I want to shout out Cody Smith McVie because mm. I think. Um, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch is fantastic in this, but I think his performance only works because you have the contrast of of Cody Smith McVie in this. And um, like for me, like I so I love I love this movie. <laughs> and for me, going back to that landscape thing, it's those performances work because it is the sort of the flipping of expectations where Benedict Cumberbatch is like I the first shot of him he's taken two steps at a time up the stairs and I'm like oh no this man's trouble (laughs) (laughs) wait taking two steps up the stairs stairs is is too too, I do that all the time it's too aggressive one step at a time please (laughs) (laughs) I knew immediately I was like this man's a problem one step at a time from now on for you (laughs) And, and you know he presents himself as the predator but I think, you know, then you have Cody Smith McVee coming in, making his paper flowers. That's where you first see him. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and everyone tries to, to abuse him and say, well, you you know, you're effeminate, uh, saying horrible slurs at him. But the way that he handles it is sort of by by not saying anything and not doing anything. And you get very interested in why that character is reacting like that. Um, because he, you know, he seems like he will be the prey and Benedict Cumberbatch will be the predator. But as the story goes on, you discover maybe not so much. And, <laughs> uh, and then how, and then to see how those two characters interact with the landscape around them. It's just, I, yeah, I understand what you, you mean about, um, like some parts of the story feel very like, okay, I know where we're going with this. And there are things that are presented as like a reveal when it's not really much of a reveal. But I think it's within their interactions and where their relationship goes, I think is so cool and interesting and frightening. It's really frightening at the by the end of this film. Like I was so tense, I nearly ripped the like the armchairs off the seat because I was like, <laughs> this is really stressing me out because these two men are in this very weird dance with each other and it's just not going to end well. I know. <laughs> I think also with Benedict's, Benedict is that, you know, there was that thing recently about like Dr. Strange being super arrogant and that's something that he does so well. And in mm-hmm. this, like Phil, he's just everything, you know, it's that toxic masculinity, but it's also that elitist, elitist attitude. Like in a way, his character who, who, has has decided to leave polite society because he doesn't think you know that is real work and he's basically totally embodying this like idea of what a man is and what a man should be um but then you realize why why he's doing that why he's like his twisted mind and how 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 that's i suppose not to give things away but the reason why he's got that attitude is like he's plays that very interestingly. It's funny because I, I interviewed him recently for this thing for um, Empire and we were talking about it and I kind of offended him because <laughs> I was like, I was like, yeah, I kind of called Phil Berber like he's a terrible person. And uh, he got like, he's like, he was very defensive about Phil. He's like, well, he's got all these things in the back. Blah, and it's like, oh God. What I love about Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Clemens is that, you know, they're married in real life. And you felt that there's just like a nice, like lived in romantic. It felt very easy. And I love that. And I think they played that very well. 
I agree with that. I also think that it's annoying because Jesse Plemons disappears from the second half of the movie. Jane Canfield, like her flexing by casting Thomas and McKenzie, who does not do anything in this movie. Nothing. And it took me half the film to realize it was her because she's just like putting plates out in the background. And you're like, well, sorry to also McKenzie. drop another name of someone who I recently <laughs> interviewed. <laughs> I interviewed Thomas and McKenzie, and I was like, oh, that's the, like you did like that. And she's apparently. Jane is a Jane's the godmother of her sister, old family friend. So oh, right, so it was that's like a, why a she's in there. Favorite, yeah. yeah. You know, Thomason is like her parent. Her, her mother's an actor. Her grandmother was an actor. So yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. There's all. There's always got. There's you can always find. There's like seven degrees of nepotism. <laughs> I was about to say this must have really triggered your nepotism senses. <laughs> this is my theory. Only five people live in New Zealand, and if they tell you it's more, they're lying. Because <laughs> 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 there's also like Cohen Holloway's in this as well, who's a guy who's like in every Taika Waititi movie. <laughs> it's like there's five people in New Zealand. <laughs> the thing is, I don't. My issue isn't nepotism. It's the idea idea that's when people try and act as if they've not benefited from it or like do you know what I mean it's like you can you can say like like Dominic West's son getting cast as Prince Charles with Prince William in the crown this nationwide quest that ended at Dominic, Dominic West's store is kind of weird so yeah I mean look it's gonna happen people follow in the family footsteps uh, but it's just more like come on it's like yeah you're you could be talented and and of course you should get success but let's all not pretend that that hasn't played a massive um, impact on you getting ahead in the industry and I think a lot of people try and like depress it depress like you know mm-hmm. I suppose act as if that's not, that's not the case anyway sorry I'm uh mm-hmm. spieling I'm rambling so okay should we do um should we do it so it's out in the cinemas this week and then it's out on Netflix next week December 1st December 1st so screen stream or skip I'm on stream great Clarice uh, screen is screen, 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 screen. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. say screen as well. It's a very beautiful <laughs> film and I rated it. Okay, so from the power of the door to the power of a backhand, this is <laughs> King Richard. What's going on? Everybody okay? They got a call, said there was trouble in the house. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you all need to look around. It's a little wet for practice, don't you think? The girls have schoolwork to do. They do their homework. Tundi's first in her class. Lynn and Isha are too. Now I don't even mind you saying we hard on these kids. You know why? Because we are. That's our job, to keep them off these streets. You want to check on the kids? Let's check on the kids. We got future doctors and lawyers, plus a couple tennis stars in this house. The chances of achieving the kind of success that you're talking about is just very, very unlikely. Okay, you're making a mistake, but I'm going to let you make it. In West Compton, born and raised, on a tennis court is where I spent most of my days. Woo! <laughs> We're talking about Will Smith in King Richard. Uh, is Oscar's glory imminent? Uh, we shall see. But this film is based on the true story that will inspire the world because it follows the journey of Richard Williams, an undeterred father, instrumental in raising two of the most extraordinarily gifted athletes of all time who will end up changing the sport of tennis forever. Can you tell that I ripped this from <laughs> the Warner Bros. <laughs> website? <laughs> it's also true. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, you've probably heard, you've probably heard of uh, Venus and Serena Williams. Uh, if you're listening to this. Anyway, uh, driven by a clear vision of their future and using 
unconventional methods. Richard has a plan that will take Venus and Serena Williams from the streets of Compton, California, to the global stage as legendary icons. Wow, they really are laying it on thick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Direct- yes, because I don't know anything about tennis. <clears throat> are Venus and Serena Williams the most famous ten- tennis players of all time? I think Serena is. They are in the discussion for sure. Um, whether we can actually sort of put paid to, you know, definitely the most famous tennis player of all time. I don't, I don't know. But Serena, <laughs> Serena is definitely, definitely like... is. Serena okay. definitely is. Serena is the GOAT. We we all know that. Um, but um, most famous, I mean, how, how do you quantify that? Anyway. Well, I uh, don't know other tennis players. I know the Williams sisters. <laughs> well, there you go. That's anybody else. You don't know <laughs> Angie Murray? Oh yeah, but I own, I know them primarily <laughs> for being Scottish and not a tennis player. Okay, so right. English when you win. This is directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green, who directed Monsters and Men a few years ago, and written by Zach Balin, and it stars Will Smith in the title role, Anjanae Ellis, Sonia Sidney, Demi Singleton, Tony Goldwyn, and John Bernthal. In tiny shorts. <laughs> in tiny shorts. Yes, he is. Um, so I feel like when this film first got announced, there were some rumbles on the internet um, because, you know, as as you say, Venus and Serena Williams are you know, the two biggest or two of the biggest athletes in the history of the sport. And yet the film was being told from the perspective of Richard. Um, Hannah, did that perspective work for you? I mean, yeah, it did work for me. Should that have been the perspective? I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. I would have prefer. I would have preferred a film that actually had it both and actually focused on, especially in this film that kind of looks at the rivalry even between the sisters um, about about you know obviously one's older and who was getting the chances. Especially what we see plays out. You know, Venus was the one who was getting getting help first and training first while she had to do it with her mother. So I get that, and also I think, and I feel like I should say this, especially as I really did enjoy the film. I do think there's a there's been criticism about how much the film left out about King Richard to try and, you know, kind of like streamlined him, you know, not talking about the fact that he was a father of 10 children. And there's a brief mention of like the son that he left. And I think this tries to paint him too much of this, like, I don't know, uh, I know, uh, like the as it said, inspirational figure who put everything on the line for these kids. It's like, yeah, the two kids who could get him successful. So I think there is a bit of error in judgment in, in uh, I suppose, omitting that aspect of it. And it wouldn't be the first time, you know, I think in Straight Out of Compton. Oh, interestingly, another film about Compton. But that <laughs> that that omitted, you know, it kind of sent, um, you know, Dr. Dre up as this, you know, amazing figure. But like the guy has been in trouble for domestic violence and stuff so mm-hmm. when we have men who are as these leaders of and doing these big change things and inspiring figures I don't think it's fair to leave out the the, the nasty bits so so yeah so I don't I, I think that's the misstep on on this film for me like his past and like his his previous marriage and and the children from that marriage I was like that feels like it would psychologically would be a really big part of what you know of how he acted as a father like is it him trying to make up for past mistakes like you know i i think what i agree with what you said and also to add to that i think it makes the portrait a little psychologically incomplete 
I also still really liked it, um, mainly because of Will Smith. We'll get we'll get onto him in a second, but <laughs> I think to to go with the story of the movie, you have to just accept that it's not as an actual like documentation of history. It's not it's not so great, probably. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree with a lot of that. I think what saved it for me in some in certain respects is that even though it is called King Richard and, you know, he definitely gets the lion's share of screen time and everything else. There is really a focus on the ensemble as a whole. And we really get to see how they function as a family unit. Um, and that really is one of the things that I liked most about this movie, which to me could have taken the easy route in so many respects. Like there's an easy sports movie cliche ridden version of this that they could have made. And it does not go in that direction at multiple points. And I really like that about it. Mm. And, and for me, I'm actually a massive fan of the sports genre, um, sports movie genre. Um, you know, I think because I played quite to a high level of sport myself. And so I enjoy seeing how people become great. And I love the fact that we're kind of seeing how their talent played out. And I think they shot that really well the kind of tennis matches. And I know some people said, I don't want to watch You could just find this out online. It's like, yeah, but there's something quite, I really like that look at what, what we're into it. And that, to its credit, I think it showed that the guy, the, you know, King Richard, he was a disciplinarian. Like he would say, this is what you're going to do. Um, and it is what it takes. And actually people don't re- realize that a lot of the most successful athletes sometimes come from households where their parents are like, proper intense um I've met some of these people as well so it's like yeah so so I think it really captures that and I think it's so good to you know there's such a a gap in the market for sports sports films especially centering on women um successes so I quite enjoyed that and I like the kind of balance of um humor but also drama as well I mean (laughs) I don't know if we're gonna get out of characters but like John Bernthal he's like for me John Bernthal and um, Anjane, they were, they, I hope they get supporting act nominations. Yes. I like the fact that it didn't ignore her contributions, their mother's contributions to their, to their training and success. Yes. No, I completely agree with that. Um, But let us talk about the dude, the Fresh Prince of Compton, uh, Will Smith. uh, Fresh King now. (laughs) (laughs) The Fresh King of Compton. Oh, that's a headline waiting to be written. Very good. Written? Waiting to be written. Very good. Um, Chris, I'm going to let you have a uh, first shot at this. Uh, what did you make of Mr. Smith? Uh, I I love watching him. And I think this movie is one of those really great examples of the star and the character kind of fusing together nicely. Because like, I, I think that this film is quite good at challenging your trust in him throughout the whole film of like okay is this guy really making the right choices with his kids because there's a whole thing about him pulling the the daughters out of the junior tournaments which we know in the film is the only way that anybody becomes a tennis star (laughs) so you're really like are we sure about this uh and it's good it's very good at toying with that but i and i think a lot of that is down to smith's performance because um I think is, you know, I I think of him as an inspirational guy because we know a lot about like his childhood. You know, he made a fucking sitcom about the place that he grew up in. 
<laughs> like we're all very conscious about Will Smith's personal life. Um, on his social media, he's really open about his own uh, history as a parent, like his failures and successes as a father. And I think all of that really plays into the character. And there are moments in the film where he's like pouring his heart out. And I was like, God, I don't know if this is Richard Williams or if this is Will Smith saying this stuff. Like there's um, there's just like a real connection. And um, I think, and that is really what like pushed me across the line into liking this movie because I so uh, believed in him and just like, I don't know, I just love Will Smith. I just wanted him to do well. <laughs> <laughs> do do we think uh oscar glory is in the cards here i mean i i think a nomination is definitely forthcoming um and i think we're still a little bit early in the race to sort of you know really see you know what he's going up against at this point um but you know i i, I really like this performance i'd say it's probably my third favorite performance of smiths after ali and pursuit of happiness did he get nominated for both of those you did, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is exactly the sort of story that he would get nominated. If you think about it, yeah. <laughs> they're all the yeah. same film. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's about like, you know what I mean? Like, that's, so, it, I mean, if he if he doesn't get a nominated, then that would be weird. Nomination, mm. that would be very weird because it kind of it kind of hits the same sort of beats, you know. You know. Mm. But, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like, I do like Will in it. And I think there are, he's very good. I think he's a very emotional actor. And I think he really plays those scenes very well. But I don't know. There was something that was just a bit. Uh, I could see. I could. I, I suppose it's because you know. I know he's doing the kind of he's doing doing an impression of Richard, and I felt sometimes it did feel like an impression at moments at some bits of it. So it's a bit felt a little bit uneven for me because um, I just I didn't want it. Yeah, not like, like a bit of a caricature s. But again, you know. Sometimes it's like you don't know, like I don't know Rich, this guy, I don't know Richard Williams from day to day. So it could be the most accurate thing, but there was something, mm-hmm. I suppose, a bit weird. I could see that it was Will Smith do. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it was, yeah. there was a little, there wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't I think the accent has been pushed a little further than it was in real life. Yeah. I think I've seen this is. mentioned by people I that think that's it's it not as strong. Yeah. I think that's it is. God, accents. <laughs> but you know, accents, <laughs> you know, are, I mean, here and there, I mean, if it's, a, if it's a strong enough performance and I think you can kind of like go move past it. And I suppose, yeah, I can. I just think I like this, that this film, yeah, it made sure that as much as it was King Richard as the title, it really did give a sense of like these women and gave them understanding. I just think, you know, there's a few issues for it, but yeah, not, mm. not too bad. Yeah. Speaking of accents, we've got House of Gucci coming up very soon. Uh, so <laughs> be, prepared for that. be prepared for that discussion. Oh, can I plug uh, my uh, MTV movie special, House of Gucci, available on MTV's YouTube channel? You can hear me talking about Adam Driver's wigs. Um, he says, and I quote, the wig, the wig game is on point. So I saw a Lady Gaga fan account tweet that clip out. I know they ripped it. it off and didn't link back. Damn them! <laughs> no, I think that's good. I I think that's a great sign. Is when a yeah. stan account is yeah. <laughs> <ripping> your work. <laughs> Before we move on to screen streamer skip, I did want to give a quick shout out to Sonia Sydney and Demi yes. and and Demi Singleton, uh, who I think are really really great uh, in this movie as uh, Venus and Serena in their younger years. I expect to be hearing a lot more from them 
in the coming years as they continue uh, to act their butts off. But the time has come for Screen, Stream and Skip. Hannah, where are we going? Screen. Yeah, I, I think Screen. And I'm also going Screen. Yeah. Uh, game set and Screen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for King Richard. From Papa to Mama. Uh, it's time to talk Petite Mama. C'est quoi Tu connais trucs d'enfant Elle avait tout gardé. Ça te fait de la peine d'être ici Elle est triste. Elle a préféré partir ce matin. On a décidé que ce serait mieux comme ça. Maman, I love you. Petite maman, I care. <rire> <laughs> so this is a petite maman. I'm very sad because I I had the screening for link, link for this and it expired before I was able to watch it. No. One of the pitfalls of the job. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you fuck up. And you go don't get to watch things before they expire. Um but I'm excited to catch up with this. Uh this is petite maman. Uh I don't know anything about it, so I'm going to need you guys to explain it to me. Uh, Nelly, an eight-year-old girl, has just lost her beloved grandmother and is helping her parents clean out her mother's childhood home. One day, her mom, her maman <laughs> abruptly leaves <laughs> and Nelly meets a girl her age as she's building a treehouse in the woods. It is written and directed by the legendary <laughs> Celine Schiama. <laughs> it stars Josephine Sons, Gabrielle Sons, uh, Stéphane Varouten, Nina Muris, and Margot Abascal. Oh, I love These it when you pronounce just... names. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying my best. <laughs> so great. No, it's good. That's a, that's a compliment. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so... I, Hannah, I want to start with you. I, I, am I going to like this? You're going to absolutely <laughs> bloody love I like it. About this. You're going to j'adore. This is the rest of this review in French. Okay, I have a more specific question about it because for me, Celine Sciamma, um, she is so, so good at making movies about like how we, how looking, how we look at each other. Yeah. And how, you know, like in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, is the, the gaze in Wanda Lilies. Does this movie continue that theme? It, it's kind of like, uh, I suppose, how we understand each other. And I suppose, I, I suppose that gap, again, between like relationships between mothers and daughters, it's a very generational story. So, but it definitely, I would say this obviously has more in common with something like Tomboy, obviously, because it's about kids. But it's that kind of, I suppose, because it's, it feels less, I mean, you're working with children and obviously the two, Nelly and uh, I think, oh God, I forgot the name of the, the little girl, but the, I, I don't know if it's much of a spoiler, but based, it's the, the thing's called Little Mother. So I think it's kind of a giveaway about who the friend is, but it's paid by twins. And I think what you see is just like allowing them to just do what they need to do, like allowing them to give them an idea and like work with that. There's a very naturalistic approach to this like filmmaking, which it just, it kind of really draws you in just like, the, again, that kind of like natural wonderment about how children get on and the kind of purity of it and the innocence of that. And I suppose mm. what I really love is like how the film really does engage, like what would it be like if you could meet your mother at your age? 
like how would you understand them better and look Clarice is making a face and she's like oh so yeah it we're is already about, gonna cry this yeah. sounds very upsetting so it is about how we see each other <laughs> but in the sense of how we see each other at you know how how we get a better understand the people in our lives a bit more but what they were like and how often you know age you kind of lose that and yeah it's just such a I mean such a tender tender movie Amon, I wanted to ask a little bit about the the look of the film. I mean, is it particularly naturalistic? Is it more on the fantasy side? Like, what approach is she taking? It's definitely more on the naturalistic side in terms of visuals. Um, the story has a lot of magical realism elements to it. Um, but I think the, the best thing I can say about this film is that I think, you know, by now that you guys have sort of probably realised that I'm a guy who, you know, I like logic on screen and I like being able to sort of you know, understand sort of why things are happening and that makes me feel it more generally uh, when I'm watching a film. You have those questions or you can have those questions about this film um, because it's never fully sort of, you know, stated how this is happening. But I didn't need that. I didn't want that. And the film is better for not really explaining that explicitly. You just let it wash over you and it's more powerful. And it's more beautiful because of what it's doing. And that's to me, a mark of a filmmaker at the very top of her game. I think that's what's what I felt. I, I mean, again, I haven't read the script, but I definitely felt like it's not, it didn't seem like overly written. It's felt like this is what it's like. It's like I had a template of saying, this is what I want the story to be about. These are the things I've got to hit. And let's play it out in a way that's, that feels like natural to these kids and 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 doesn't again, like you said, it doesn't the more information you give something, the more kind of context you give something, the more questions and holes you can post poke into it. But if you just accept the fact that this thing's happens, like um in you know, midnight in Paris, if they go to this place at a certain time of night, they're gonna get transported back. That's just the story. <laughs> like, you don't need to know mm. why they're getting transported back, really. It's like, that's the way it is. Sorry to bring up, like, Woody Allen, but, like, that's the first thing that came to my head. Maybe that, like, <laughs> but that's what I love about a film. It's like, just just enjoy it. Um, also, can I just say, um, literally, the fact that it's 72 minutes is just beautiful to me. <laughs> it's just like, yes, I yeah. love that in a movie. It yeah. doesn't need to waffle on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love a movie that justifies its runtime, whether it's 72 minutes or three hours long. I've seen many films of those lengths, um, which have been very, very good and very, very bad. This is a film 72 minutes long and it doesn't need another minute would have felt too long. Um, it's just it's perfectly paced. I, I love that. I have one more very quick question. Somebody mentioned that there's a clip scene. Oh God, it's so perfect. <laughs> it's so, and this is what I'm talking about, what I think was so beautiful. Because, again, the kind of twin sisters um, who are playing, like, these two different characters. And you just feel like you can tell. Like, it's just there. Do you know what I mean? They're, they've got this connection. And it's just a beautiful playing around. And they're just messing it up and putting too much, like, milk in. And it's just, yeah, Aww. it's just those little bits where it feels like that's why sometimes you don't need to script some things. Just say, play with that, play with the crates and they'll just bring it out. And that's why children are sometimes so beautifully, beautiful, like beautiful additions to cinema. And you can, you can set a film because they naturally will come to these places of just authenticity. Well, I was pre-sold going into this because I'm such a huge <laughs> like, Excuse me, fan. I need to see this immediately. <laughs> I'm off to see this. 
yeah, I'm going now. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> but let, let's for the I'm sold, but for everyone listening, we got to do the screen stream skin. <laughs> Amon, what are you going with? Screen. See it twice because it's only 17 minutes long. Yay, Hannah. <laughs> I'm going to say screen, and if you can, see it with your mum. No. And end oh, sobbing to yeah. each other's arms afterwards. Yeah, and bring tissues. Yeah, lots of tissues. Well, from from petite maman to p- p- petite m- stay puff marshmallow man. Too <laughs> 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 petite, uh, stay puffed because they're the little mm. ones in there. It's Ghostbusters Afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> You're a great mom. I don't know. I'm fine with Trevor. But with Phoebe, she really keeps me on the outside. That's normal. She's an awkward, nerdy kid. Maybe a new home can be an opportunity to start fresh. I just wish she'd get into some trouble. There's still time. <laughs> something strange in your neighborhood. Who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Oh my god, guys, I love that. Okay, so in Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is the fourth in the franchise, it's a direct sequel to the 19. 84 and 1999 films um it follows a single mother and her two kids who arrive in a small town where they begin to discover their connections to the original where they begin to discover their connection to the original ghostbusters through the secret legacy their grandfather left behind and find a paranormal threat ready to return once more it's directed by Jason Reitman, the son of Ivan Reitman, who uh, directed the originals. Um, and he co-wrote the screenplay with Gil Keenan. I think Ivan Reitman is also an exec producer on this. Um, it stars Carrie Coon as a single mother, Finn Wolfhard and McKenna Grace as her kids. What made the original Ghostbusters trilogy great was that it was these kind of, these guys they're comedians they're from snl and they're having fun with it and you kind of like the snarky kind of back and forth all about it this is now recentered with a child teen child perspective amon does that work for this sort of story does it kind of keep the legacy going in a way that feels nice or fun i think so just about um because you know, uh, the character McKenna Grace plays, uh, she is tied to uh, Egon Spengler, uh, one of the original Ghostbusters, obviously played by Harold Ramis Jr., who is unfortunately no longer with us. And I felt um, that they did a really good job with that connection or the lack of that connection that she's felt for so long and how that um, has given her conflict with her mother, um, and that sort of really came through. Um, I would have liked there to have been more between her and uh, her brother, played by Finn Wolfhard of Stranger Things fame. Um, but between those two and Logan Kim, who plays a character called Podcast, just Podcast, uh, which is amazing. Because of my podcast. 
by the way, I've been meaning to mention, I think we've really found our voice in the 12th episode. Guys, so, so well done. Um, but um, yeah, those three, I thought, uh, had really uh, great chemistry, especially sort of McKenna Grace and Logan Kim. And that sort of uh, powered most of the film for me. So yeah, it's not as, uh, you know, instantly iconic as the original, but you know, what could be? That's like a very, very high bar. Um, and I think they did a solid job here. How about you, Clarice? Did it work for you? No. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> um, I was a really huge fan of Ghostbusters growing up. It's one of the reasons I got into comedy. It was a film that I watched before, you know, Caddyshack and The Jerk uh, and all those fantastic classics. <laughs> uh, Ghostbusters is a comedy. It's a comedy. I'm not even going to have this argument. Ghostbusters is a comedy. And, um, You're saying it's there's... not a comedy. What is it supposed to be? you would be surprised <laughs> by the amount there's this argument that ghostbusters is in fact like a a supernatural horror epic with comedic elements with what no, it's a comedy are you, are you <laughs> lying? these people okay. are ridiculous but this is the thing i think that mentality really feeds into this movie because like that is the way that it's treated it's treating this like scrappy snl adjacent like goofy thing where the only thing that was being taken seriously was like the paranormal science of it because Dan Aykroyd's very into that and like respect um (laughs) but you know it's treating this original film as if it's like you know some law packed like epic about you know the power of nerds and how important nerds are and nerds can save the day um and what the framing that I find particularly bizarre in this is the bizarre. idea that bizarre, bizarre. The, the, the framing that I find particularly bizarre, bizarre. Oh, fuck. The framing that I find particularly bizarre in this. <laughs> I can't speak anymore. The Ghostbusters ruined my voice. Um, the framing that I find particularly odd in this is. <laughs> The framing that I find particularly odd is the idea that, so the first Ghostbusters movie happened in this universe, and I guess 1984, uh, these people proved the existence of ghosts definitively. Everyone forgot about that in the (laughs) time in between. And now the Ghostbusters are treated as this like very niche, like, you know, this big secret and, and the idea of Ghostbusters Afterlife is like, we got to do right by the legacy by like claiming this niche thing. And to me, like, I don't like that because it feeds into like, it feeds into a very weird wider cultural narrative about ownership and, and the idea of like this nerd ownership of Ghostbusters because it's their like very niche thing you know and it's their triumph over being bullied as kids and then now Ghostbusters Afterlife is like validating them and I just find I find all of that really weird because yeah Ghostbusters is it's got some fucking comedy it's a fucking comedy I think <laughs> I think I, I'm I'm just there was some funny ways but I just I think it was ridiculous in so many ways in the sense of Okay, so like you said, ghosts apparently went away. There's all this American-centric idea, so wait a sec. So if you discover ghosts and apparently there are no ghosts anywhere in the world, <laughs> it's, just in Amer- it's just in America and actually we forgot. So like you're telling me these people came through, 
came through and said their ghosts exist and you're telling me that not this would be a whole industry now that makes no zero mm -hmm. sense and i think it is this problem where it's like i think there was so they were so beholden to this legacy and this what fans think you need that it did a half-hearted job on any of the new characters um that just felt like you know these these were first draft they were i mean I just found like the mother who hates science. It's just like, why does, I mean, I get that she didn't, you know, the, the idea that her, her dad left, so she hates it. I thought that was a bit weird, especially when she make, she kind of, there's a storyline, she hates so much, you know, they don't say it, but it's suggested that McKenna's like, might be autistic or Asperger's or on the spectrum. So it's like, okay, so you can accept that your daughter like that, but you'll not support her suit of um pursuit of um science there's a weird line where she says don't be yourself and it's like that's a really weird line to say to someone if a child has got some is on the spectrum of some point and that's what's that they like you think you'd be support i just i felt like it just felt like a weird thing for the mother also how did they if she doesn't have any money like what's her job what does she do they've driven like this is it's just a weird like her whole like they're getting evicted for something okay right but <laughs> what was what it made it made that made no sense to me um the idea that you know this you said podcast there's a scene where they end up in jail where's his parents like he just doesn't have anyone anyone else there's a romance that's trying to play out between Phil Finn Wolfhard and this girl at a diner which again just seems so ridiculous and there's a scene that was like there's a scene where she's kind of like slightly half naked which was a very awkward moment and it just felt like why is that scene even necessary in a film that's focused on young young people why do you even have to show her in that state of like undress and then you know again it becomes this thing where the kind of whole the, the reopening a whole narrative that we'd already kind of dealt with in the, in the first like film and then you're bringing it back mm. and it just yeah it just felt like this is just really <laughs> haphazard it's just sloppy I think it's sloppy is the best description for this film it was really interesting talking to Clarice right after watching this film because we were in the same screening and you know as it's already clear Clarice is a massive massive Ghostbusters fan and she knows that movie verbatim pretty much <laughs> and I like Ghostbusters but I haven't, I'm, I'm not on that, I'm not anywhere near that level. Um, and it's been like a long time since I rewatched the film. So I didn't really have it in my head um, as I was watching this, although, but, which made that conversation with Clarice after the screening so interesting, because in thinking about that film now, I can see how everything you're watching on screen will just trigger better memories of a better film for you. Um, I, I, I didn't really have that. I was just, you know, just watching this one as is and also you know, mostly uh, entertained. Although I do, I will say that the final 20 minutes are insanely rushed um, and it, it definitely sort of comes to the screen. It, it feels like they're being a lot more deliberate with their pacing and with their character work um, in the earlier part of the movie. And then to get to certain things down the line, they go bang, 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 movie over. Um, and and that was there's a that was weird. There's to a me. weird bit. This is the thing. It, it's the Easter eggs. I mean, I went to see it, and there was an introduction by Jason Reitman saying, "Like, I oh, hope you like all the Easter eggs." It's like these Easter eggs don't make sense, mate. Yes. Okay. Can I explain one of these? Because it really pisses me off. <laughs> okay. So the little the mini Stay Puft Marshmallow Men, in the, which we've seen in the trailer, they're really pushing these mm -hmm. little guys. 
that see that to me is really that's just nostalgia for nostalgia's sake because in the original Ghostbusters, like the Stay Puft was a punchline yeah. to the joke of the... they are asked choose the form of your destructor. Yeah, yeah. And Dan Aykroyd thinks, "What's the? I yeah. oh, I just thought of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man because he could hurt nobody. Yeah, and he, he doesn't say anybody. he just don't think about anything, and he just thought about that immediately. And it's like, yeah, because it's oh. like the most innocent thing in his mind. And then the joke is, well, here comes the giant Stay yeah, Puft Marshmallow yeah. Man to destroy. So why New York is it? City. Why, why are they back <laughs> for no exactly. reason again? It, Nothing it doesn't is... make any sense. It's yeah. not the. It's not a joke anymore because yeah. there's no joke to them. They're just like, oh, the marshmallows are all awesome little things now. And also, and then that's now. the thing. It's not. It's not as you've said, Clarice. Ghostbusters is a comedy. They are all former SNL stars. They're all comedy actors, famous, famously com- like famous comedians. It is a comedy. So to have this film where it's like it's the classic thing where oh, we've got the technology now. Let's just make everything these big, like, massive, like, fight sequences and all that. And it just feels like that you're taking the kind of beauty out of what was was created so so well last year, like, a few years, well, 30 years ago. And it just, again, it just feels like, I don't know, it's, it, it just feels diluted. It feels, it feels like fate, like Diet Coke. I love Diet Coke. It's like Coke and Diet Coke stripped. <laughs> they've stripped the kind of sugar from it. It's just basically like there's no calories in there. There's no actual like anything in there that's worth really having. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, I laughed a few times, but honestly, it was just kind of depressing to watch. Yeah, it made me kind of sad mm. at the end of it. <laughs> okay, well, let's um, <laughs> let's go to our screen, stream or skip. Uh, Amon. Uh, it did not make me as sad as it made you guys. Um, I'm going to say stream. Clarice? Yeah. I would say skip, and I would personally put on the 2016 one, like, it's not a perfect movie, but I thought it was very funny. The fucking Mike Hat joke. <laughs> I'm still laughing. <laughs> not only are the girls great in that movie, but Chris Hemsworth is incredible. Oh my God. Genuinely, um, that Mike yeah. Hat joke is the yeah. funniest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be a skip from me too, and I a second uh, Clarice's suggestion. So, on that note, then following on from Ghostbusters Afterlife, um, and if you, we're going to get into a little bit spoilers here, so please stop listening. Thanks for tuning in. Blah 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 blah. blah Facebook. Blah blah blah. Um, as <laughs> that's especially for you. Um, yeah, stop listening if you don't want spoilers from it. Um, but this time for our. Ooh, I've been burned by ah. the proton beam. Ah, we cross streams. <laughs> we cross streams. <laughs> See, that's what's so funny about those. <laughs> anyway, because it's, right. it's like it's like pee pee. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't kind of work with uh, with kids. Anyway, okay. So mm. our hot take is whether dead actors should be brought back to life on screen. Howard Ramis uh, wouldn't be the first person to return through CGI effects. Uh, he came back, obviously, he was brought back as Egon Spendler, Spengler. Um, Peter Cushion was brought back, but not too long ago in Rogue One, a Star Wars story. But is it poor taste? Should we just accept these actors are gone and their characters or their image as them should rest in peace too? Amon, what's your thoughts? So anytime this conversation comes up, I always think about this 2013 Robin Wright film called The Congress, uh, where mm. she basically um, is a... Uh, made into a sort of a fictionalized, digitized version of herself. 
And, you know, obviously, I, I don't think we're <laughs> all the way there yet in terms of how drastic uh, the world of that film is. Um, but, yeah, it's a tricky thing. I, In general, I'm against it because, you know, the actors which are being brought back to life, they obviously don't have any input in that decision. Um, with this one, and, and this is a very specific, you know, thing related to Ghostbusters Afterlife, and I, I'm going to, you know, hazard a guess that you guys didn't agree with the its usage based on what you feel about the movie. But this one is an interesting case because I did, you know, feel emotional in how they brought him back um, because the film was working for me uh, on some level. Um, so on, on this level, um, it worked, I guess, you know, it just goes back to really a similar take to what I had about our discussion last week, but if you can do it in a way that doesn't take me out of the movie and I'm just, you know, questioning, you know, whether you should do it sort of in the moment and therefore sort of, you know, just completely divorcing myself from giving myself over to what I'm seeing on screen then it becomes a problem. And the, in recent times, like the Peter uh, Cushing one you mentioned for, was it Vogue yeah. one? Uh, that, 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 that one did not work for me at all um, because it wasn't done very well as well. Um, and that took me out of the movie. With this one, with Ghostbusters Afterlife, it mostly worked. And it's a tricky, you know, I, I, you know, I go back to what I was saying earlier in terms of there's no input from you know, Howard Ramis uh, in this case uh, because uh, he's passed. But given the close sort of family ties to Ghostbusters in who's directing and who's producing, we mentioned the Ivan, the, the, the whole Vitement of all uh, before we got into the uh, review. Um, I feel like if anyone is going to make the decision and sign off on that, it should be someone as close to the franchise and as close to the original as those guys are um and couple that with the fact that the film was working for me and i did feel emotional about it in this instance it worked but in general i'm against the idea if that makes any sense clarice i am always against the idea at all times <laughs> i think that's my position did you the the the, the, the carrie fisher and um she carrie fisher well, yeah it's the princess Leia, this... she was alive when she did that wasn't it isn't Prince Princess Leia? Yeah, she, he, she was she actually died. alive. She, oh, she died right after the film was released, I think. So she'd um, already given permission for her likeness to be used in that. And are we but, talking about the young Princess Leia in that film? Yeah, when she goes. Yeah. Poop. Um, I mean that's the thing. Even then, I I don't I just find it weird. Period, and I don't like it, but. I think my like scale of anger <laughs> is <laughs> it's I place those things on like how much there's a narrative purpose for it. Mm. So the stuff mm. for Rogue One, it's like I don't like it. I don't think it's good. Um, but you know, especially the Leia. Okay, I can see why because they could have just cast another actress, and they did. Who was behind the CGI? Do you not remember? Actually, hasn't. Isn't this? I remember reading in I can't remember which of her biographies. I think it's like maybe I don't know one of her, but one of her books. She said how like um, I think it's wishful drinking, and she said how when she signed up for Star Wars, she signed over her likeness. 
So, so that, oh, wow. so that, that's part of it as well. It's like you sign of your likeness for merchandise. And she said, like, you get these things. And it's like her in all these different, she was talking about like, she's she, her in bikinis and all these different things. It's like, oh, wow. Mm. Like, I don't even have a choice anymore. So that's what's so interesting about it as well. It's like, if they've given mm -hmm. over their, their rights already. And I think it's interesting. And I always think about Robin Williams who made it, um, he put a thing, a stipulation that his likeness could not be used for like a hundred years. He wow. made it because he just didn't want, and, and in a way right. it's like, I'm so right. glad he did that <laughs> because I, I think mm. you're right, Clarice. It's like, I find it a bit uncomfortable because again, it's like who gets what, if there's no say from that person and also it takes away like their, their creativity and their artistry and acting, you're like, I know it's not a lot sometimes and we're Harold in the, Ghostbusters but it's like you're deciding how that person would act Peter Cushion you're deciding how that person would act in that scene and I think that takes away their artistic integrity and I don't just because they're dead it doesn't really mean that you have the right to to decide how they would do something I just think then otherwise we could all end up just being props and then it's just anime you know what I mean like yeah and I'd much rather in all of those instances like I mean, spoiler for the Mandalorian, <laughs> you know, having uh, Luke Skywalker, I'd much rather that they'd cast, I don't know, Sebastian Stan yeah. and just made it mm -hmm. obvious enough that it's Luke Skywalker. I find all of this, like, face replacement stuff just yeah. ethically very weird, and I don't like the direction that we're going in. And I think in all the instances that we're talking about, it's like, well, I'm my issue is not bringing back that character it's like literally taking somebody's face and yeah. putting it on another face because I'm sure for Ghostbusters they probably had a stand-in yeah. and digitally like smacked that face on and like that feels very ghoulish to me to be like also, we put a dead person's face on a living person's what's face. Weird about the Star Wars weird. What's weird about the Star Wars one though is like they did solo a Star Wars story. Like, imagine if they did that whole film and put Harrison Ford's face on. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Elder and Elder Like, oh it's like, God. I don't no. think people are that. People would love it if you had a young Luke Skywalker. Like, you know, I don't think people would have an issue that, especially when you think about how big the animated series are, that you've had different characters. Yeah. Matt Laudner, I think he plays, is he the one? Uh, Matt Lanter, I think he's the one who voices. Yeah. Uh, Anakin yeah, Skywalker right. you know and I don't think ha anyone would have had an, would have an issue if Matt Lanter became Anakin Skywalker in live action I mean obviously Hayden Christensen says you might have might do it but I think it's a, it'd be interesting it's a trick one it's I mean in general I would agree but it's a tricky one because he appeared in an episode of the Mandalorian uh in the first season yeah, but um, Gemma Chan's I, been Marvel twice. Gemma Chan like... was, yeah. Like... <laughs> All rules are broken yeah. now. You could have, I mean... There's oh, the Gemma yeah. Chan precedent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just think, like, I mean, I I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I do think that, especially with the rise of deep fake technology and that getting scarily, you know, good, uh, it's going to be something which is going to continue to happen. Yeah, but what's the ethical? This is a problem. It's that what's the ethical yeah. thing? And I You're personally taking... think it's somewhat. I think if there's if they're alive and they can give permission and they've got that fine, but I I do think it's an ethical uh, gray area when someone is dead and you're you're profiting off their likeness. Uh, without their actual uh, say in it. But I assume with the Peter Cushion thing, he'd also signed, a, you know, as with the Star Wars contracts, these things, he must have mm -hmm. signed over his likeness as well. Um, but it's also, with you know, this it's expanding, isn't it? It's the Whitney Houston doing holographic things, you know, 
people are doing all yeah, and I find it very that. I find it very Dreamy. I find it very uncomfortable and I think if it's their estates doing it I think there's something to be said about estates who are continuing to profit off someone uh you know whatever and it's like you're not the talent and it's kind of I find it kind of disgusting when people do release stuff uh yeah, I, when they're profiting after someone after the death, you've already made enough money. They've already made enough money. <laughs> Why do you mm -hmm. need any more? You're getting stuff for free. <laughs> so I don't know. And you're taking you're taking work away from hardworking Alden Ehrenreichs. Every time they do this, it's like a, an opportunity to, yeah. you know, like Sebastian said, could have gotten some extra work playing. And what would have been great stuff. about that is because, you know, it's like so many people have said he'd be a great one and it would just be a little nod to people who've like had that and he doesn't even have to come yeah. back. That's it. It'd just be like, come yeah. in and there it's done. You know, yeah, his, and he his... he does look quite like Mark Hamill. I he don't does. think anyone would have been confused yeah. if he. No, it's the hair. The thing is, it's the Luke hair, basically. Yeah. Anyway, there we go. The anyway, Luke hair and yeah. the, the little boots. <laughs> the little boots are yeah. very important. Also, you know, I fully agree with you on Sebastian Stan. And as much as I love Mark Hamill playing that character, what they it just didn't look good. No, it looked really um, weird. Yeah, because I also think it's like we, it looked weird because we know these actors now at this age, and it just mm -hmm. looks like that's not a real person. Like it is a real person, but it's like it doesn't feel authentic. It just kind of feels yeah. And I know it's full of CGI and all that type of stuff, but it was kind of I don't know. I felt it was not the I don't know. It was not big or big for me. Didn't quite enjoy. Anyway, enough of that. Let's uh, let's get on with our lives. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast. It really does make a difference. Uh, and if you don't, shut your mouth. Tweet us if you have something to say or you'd love us to shout out next week. Use the hashtag Fade to Black Pod and follow us. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter and at Hannah and S. Flint on Instagram. I'm uh, Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. And I'm at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Nee, 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 nee. Something strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call?